Welcome to Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. This is your reader and host, Mark Braun here. Glad you could join us today. So, I remind you, you're listening to a recording provided for the use of those who are blind and print impaired. Materials or items read at Ayers LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. All right, let's get it on. We've got one short Israeli story here on the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, June 4, 2023. Three Israeli soldiers, Egyptian guard, killed in border clash. Shootings involved an anti-drug effort, but details are in dispute from the Associated Press. Jerusalem. A gun battle along Israel's southern border with Egypt left three Israeli soldiers and an Egyptian officer dead Saturday, officials said. It was a rare instance of deadly violence along the frontier. Israel said the Egyptian border guard crossed into Israel and killed the three soldiers before he was fatally shot by troops. Egypt said he had been chasing drug smugglers when he entered Israel. Israel and Egypt have been at peace for more than 40 years and have strong security cooperation. Fighting between the sides is extremely rare. Lieutenant Colonel Richard Hecht, an Israeli army spokesperson, said the fighting began overnight when soldiers thwarted a drug smuggling attempt across the border. He said that several hours later, two soldiers in a guard post were shot and killed. Their bodies were found after they failed to respond to radio communications. The army said the Egyptian border guard was killed in a second exchange of fire in which a third Israeli soldier was killed. The Egyptian military said an Egyptian border guard crossed the security barrier and exchanged fire with Israeli forces while he was chasing drug traffickers. It, it said in a statement, that the Egyptian guard was killed along with three Israeli troops. Hecht said an investigation was being conducted in cooperation with the Egyptian army. He said troops were searching for another possible for other possible assailants. It was the first deadly exchange of fire along the Israel-Egypt Israel border in more than a decade. The Israeli army said one of the slain soldiers was a woman. Criminals sometimes smuggle drugs across the border while Islamic militant groups are also active in Egypt's rest of North Sinai. The exchange of fire reportedly took place around the Nitsana border crossing between Israel and Egypt. The crossing is about 25 miles southeast of where Israel's border with Egypt and the Gaza Strip converge. It's used to import goods from Egypt destined for Israel or the Hamas-ruled Gaza Strip. Israel built a fence along the porous border a decade ago to halt the entry of African migrants and Islamic militants. That was three Israeli soldiers, Egyptian guard killed in border clash from the Associated Press out of the Los Angeles Times for Sunday, June 4, 2023. And here's something from the calendar section going into some entertainment news. Calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, June 4th, 2023, an essential LA history. Xavier Sklavsky's thoughtful reflections in a new memoir capture an era of radical transformation with vivid details and fresh insights by Jim Newton. This feels like a turning point in the life of Los Angeles. Two of the towering figures in LA's late 20th century, philanthropist Eli Abroad, Mayor Richard Reardon, have died in recent years. Another pioneering figure, County Supervisor Gloria Molina, died last month. A new batch of city council members has just been seated, and in the most recent mayoral elections, voters chose Karen Bass, 
represented a break from City Hall's culture over a candidate, Rick Caruso, who felt like one from that earlier era. But what are those bygone battles? The police struggles of the 80s and 90s, the reimagination of cultural institutions, the fights over taxes, and the environment and schools. Much of that history is slipping away, along with the lives of those who made it. Happily, a new memoir by one of modern Los Angeles' most significant and recognizable figures just uh, arrives just in time. Zev's Los Angeles, From Boyle Heights to the Halls of Power, the autobiography of, well, Zev, revisits the period in which Los Angeles became what we know today. Big and complex, multiracial, exciting, divided, and fair, and far deeper than what, we, than what meets the eye. Zev Yoslavsky left a lasting mark on L.A. Over, the, over decades on the L.A. City Council and the Board of Supervisors, and his thoughtful reflections earned his memoir an honored place in the history he helped make and helped make uh, and now he and now helps to understand. It's both timely and necessary, filling a void that other memoirs have left. Broad's autobiography, for instance, is serious and reflective and surprisingly self-deprecating for a man who rarely was, but it lies somewhere between a memoir and a guide to success in business. Reardon produced a memoir too, but it stands mainly for the observation that what makes a good mayor does not always make a good writer. It's just bad. Yaroslavsky, however, has what it takes. Aided by former Los Angeles Times writer Josh Gatlin, Yaroslavsky manages the dual tales of his own life and the broader L.A. story. The result is satisfying at every level. A solid history, an insightful analysis of power, and a sincere reflection on a life of service. A word of disclosure, I've known Yaroslavsky for decades and written about him for the Times and others. Getlin is an old and valued colleague. Still, I believe my appreciation and knowledge, and knowledge of both co-authors on balance enhances my judgment here. The book covers a broad landscape, fitting for a public official who did the same. Yaroslavsky first became known for his UCLA student activism and his forceful defense of Soviet Jews, a cause he recounts with a verb in Zev, with verb in Zev. Those chapters alone make the, the book worth reading, a look at a failed empire that, in light of its renewed aggression, feels freshly relevant. Yaroslavsky was still in need of a of grown-up haircut when he declared his candidacy for the Los Angeles City Council near the end of 1974, but he was quick to act when a vacancy opened up on the council. Yaroslavsky jumped into the special election race. His press conference in front of Cantor's Deli was sparsely attended by a mostly indifferent media. Even his wife, soon to become almost as well-known as he, was busy that morning and skipped her husband's moment. Nevertheless, in the months that followed, he walked precincts, handed out flyers, and, to the amazement of many, won. Suddenly, the scruffy activist was part of the governing body of the nation's second-largest city. Tom Bradley, LA's austere and imposing mayor, suggested Yaroslavsky invest in some suits now that he was part of the establishment. Yaroslavsky responded, I may be part of the establishment, but the establishment is not part of me. True enough. Yaroslavsky's youth, smarts, and independence all served him well in his early years as he went from the went about the careful business of constructing an office. In his memoir, 
He details that process in its arcana, selecting staff, seeking out trustworthy colleagues, staying close to the needs of constituents. His recounting is a study in what it means to build power, as well as a reminder that it's not principally showmanship. At the local level, anyway, durable power tends to flow to those who earn it. Yaroslavsky earned it. He also had a knack for attracting the right enemies, none more de uh, defining than police chief Daryl Gates. The young councilman and the veteran chief fought over cops spying on elected officials, over the use of chokeholds, over policy shootings. They fought most memorably over Gates' stubborn refusal to depart his office, even after the beating of Rodney King and the riots that uh, the following year. Once Gates once called Yaroslavsky a snot-nosed kid, but the councilman got the last laugh. By the end of 1992, Yaroslavsky was still standing and Gates was gone. As the book progresses and Yaroslavsky moves from the council to the board of supervisors, it charts the mysterious contradictions of LA's transformation. How, for instance, could the same leadership that brought the 1984 Summer Olympics to Los Angeles almost flub the construction of Walt Disney Concert Hall, the city's most important building? Yaroslavsky's account of those episodes gives new insight and unearths some of the hidden figures in each. The vital role played by Councilman Bob Ronka, the outpending effects of Proposition 13 in 1978, the clash of egos over Disney Hall. Here, Yaroslavsky mentions but underplays the efforts of Angia Vandekamp, the hall's indispensable person too often overlooked because she was the only one who didn't demand credit. To my mind, the achievement that best sums up Yaroslavsky's contribution is the work he and his staff did to protect the Santa Monica Mountains. It took more than a decade, assembling parcels, winning approvals, co uh, coaxing participants. It required nurturing allies and a willingness to make enemies. It demanded time and almost inconceivable patience. The tale of how it happened is as bureaucratic as it as can be, but Yaroslavsky's methodical rendering underscores its significance. Only a dedicated public servant with decades of experience and sustained attention could have protected those mountains that give Los Angeles a connection back to its prehistory. Indeed, it could have only been done by Zev. This is Yaroslavsky's account, of course, and it captures such intuitives from his point of view. Some will take issue with some of his uh, conclusions and with figures he singles out for praise or criticism. But the memoir makes no claim to omniscience. It is subjective, but clear and penetrating. If Zev's Los Angeles is a story of power and influence and big personalities, and it is, it is also a story of love. Yaroslavsky's love for this city and region define his memoir. But what it really animates is his love for his wife, the sparkling Barbara Yaroslavsky, who was every bit Zev's partner in his life and work. Her death in 2018 was a shock to the leadership of Los Angeles, and her funeral brought that community together, as few other modern events have. Her story, too, lives in this uh, moving and important book. Yaroslavsky's memoir is a tribute to Barbara, but it is a gift to all of us. That was An Essential L.A. History by Jim Newton from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, June 4, 2023. Newton, a former columnist and editorial page editor of the Times, 
is an author and editor of Blueprint Magazine at UCLA. He is a regular contributor to Cal Matters. All right, now let's go to a movie review from the Los Angeles Times calendar section, Tuesday, June 6, 2023. Love Letter to Art of Dance. Cedric Clapiche's uplifting film features a star-making turn from Marion Barbeau by Robert Abel. Dance movies don't usually start by injuring their center, central protagonist. Even Black Swan held its dosing of madness in check for maximum second-half impact. But when you, a young Parisian ballet star is hobbled by a broken bone and a broken heart at the beginning of the uh, French filmmaker Cedric Clapiche's rise, it merely triggers the meaningful recovery and renewal anim- uh, animating this breezy, charming love letter to the art form, its tight-knit communities, and what nourishes the impulse to find healing expression in movement. In other words, this occasionally meandering, openly life-affirming confection is in direct contrast to the torqued and tortured Black Swan. But it's even the opposite of a beloved classic like 1948's The Red Shoes, which, while thrillingly lush and exhilarating in depicting dance, offered a more torrential view of the human passion surrounding it. There is one similarity to the Red Shoes, however, in the fact that Rise 2 boasts a a star-making turn from an acting newcomer. Ballet-trained Paris opera principal Marion Barbeau, a natural who calls up the same lived-in authenticity that made Maurice Shearer's screen debut so galvanizing. We meet Barbeau's Elise, a top ballerina in a near-wordless opening sequence, capturing the hushed bustle behind an evening performance of La Badillere. After glimpsing her co-star boyfriend cheating on her in the wings, though, Elise takes a bad fall mid-performance. She is told by a doctor that her ankle fracture will take two years to repair, and though she's 26 and in her prime, may mean never dancing again. She gets plenty of emotional support and encouragement from her physical therapist, Francois Civil, uh, dance company colleagues, and her sisters, if not to her liking, their aloof intellectual dad, Denise Paladaye. But what's stinking in, its, in is that Elise may need to pack up her only dream, the one her late mother herself had dancer fostered, and find another. On a whim, she agrees to help an ex-dancer pal, so, Sahila Jacob and her her chef boyfriend Pio Marmal cater an artist retreat in picturesque Brittany, just in time, of course, for a contemporary dance ensemble run by esteemed choreographer Hofesh Schechter, playing himself, to take up residence, opening her eyes and her recuperating mind and body to an earthier, more spontaneously freeing version of the same calling. Clapiche, who wrote Rise, originally in core with Santiago Amigorena, is best known here for the airy, friendly ensemble romantic comedy Le Aberge Espanole, which has spawned two sequels. It's hardly interested in what's fraught or complex about bouncing back from devastation. Not that the movie ignores what's physical or disciplined about dance training, but Clapiche's admiration for the art is the fore- uh, foregrounding sensibility. It makes him a good director of filmed dance, for one thing, and Elise is only 
ever surrounded by upbeat, cheery people, quick with a smile, and devoid of personality problems. It's a winning cast, but don't be surprised if you think about how many commercials for good times with friends or wellness products could be used could be exerted from the buoyant cinematography and editing style of Rise. Any hint of tension, therefore, including one character's misguided crush on Elise and the subplot of Dad's emotional reticence, quickly dissipates in the swirl of revitalization, camaraderie, or energetic choreography. One character gently tells Elise it's good that she's struggling. It's a check on her life of privilege. But that insight isn't exactly backed up by the lighthearted trajectory on display, even as Barbeau's body and spirit performance is only ever magnetic and dimensionalized, impressively so for a debut turn. Or a debut turn. She's certainly, she certainly sells Clapiche's ver uh, version with appeal to spare. She also lets you know she can probably do so much more. So while watching Elise find her second life is plenty enjoyable, here's hoping the next act in her portrayer's newfound career is just as invigorating. That was Love Letter to Art of Dance by Robert Abel from the Los Angeles Times calendar section, Tuesday, June 6, 2023. It's called Rise in French with English subtitles, not rated, running time 1 hour 57 minutes, playing at the Lamley Royal in West Los Angeles. All right, now we go into this article from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times from Thursday, June 8, 2023. Ed Asner's ghost is raising his eyebrows by Mary McNamara. On Monday, more than a month into the writer's strike, SAG-AFTRA members agreed that if the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers fails to offer them an acceptable new contract by June 30, they too will strike. Should that happen, before the w, uh, WGA and the AMPTP settle their differences, it would be the first time since 1960 writers and actors have walked off together, further disrupting television and film production. It's a rare thought, not unforeseen, uh, not unforeseen situation. If anyone at SAG-AFTRA believes in ghosts, they should be on the lookout for the specter of a balding man standing 5'7", with bulldog shoulders, highly significant eyebrows, and a picket sign reading, I told you so. Ed Asner may have almost uh, died almost two years two years ago, but for more than 40 years, he repeatedly predicted the very mess Hollywood finds itself in now. When actors walked out in 1980, Asner, then star of Lou Graham, a successful spinoff of his iconic role on the Mary Tyler Moore show, became one of the most prominent voices of the strike. Like the one Hollywood is currently facing, it revolved in large, uh, large part around residuals, then for cable networks and VHS tapes. Asner, still the most Emmy-winning male performer of all time, believed passionately that the studios needed to create a fair and expandable system to ensure that actors were paid for their work every time it was sold on whatever platform that purchased it. He believed it so passionately that when SAG accepted a deal that included, among other half-measures, cable networks being allowed to air content for 10 days without paying residuals, he pushed back. I think it stinks, he said at the time. Many SAG members agreed, electing him president the following year. Asner's time in office was not a dull one. He was criticized for his liberal politics, particularly for his criticism of then-President Reagan, but involved a consistent message of enfranchisement. Among other things, he pushed for a merger with AFTRA, which would not be accomplished until 2012, 
and lobbied for legislation that made it unfair to use occupation as a metric for pricing auto insurance. <clears throat> Actors did not fare too well. More importantly, the man who perfected the crotchety but good-hearted geezer, be he Mr. Grant or else Santa Claus, spent much of his life reminding the world that while many may daydream about what it would be like to be a movie star, most actors are not living the high life or, like Asner, being showered with awards. It was and is an important message. Even more so than writers, actors face a double bind when it comes to labor disputes. When contract disputes arise, the most recognizable voices are, inevitably, the most well-known. It can be difficult for the average citizen to sympathize with famous actors who, with their multi-million dollar deals and commercial contracts, appear to be doing just fine. But, as Asner never stopped pointing out, most actors, even those audiences see in time and again in minor roles, are not making millions. Most are just scraping by job to job hoping to earn enough to sustain their sag after membership and keep their health insurance. Indeed, Asner was among those who filed and won posthumously a class action suit against SAG after it raised the earning requirements for that health insurance and cut 12,000 people from the program. But his most oft-repeated message was the reminder that actors at every level are workers and deserve to be paid for their work, including when that work is sold or resold on an ever-growing number of platforms. That same baby has come back to haunt us ever since, he told Backstage Magazine regarding the 1980 contract settlement. It led to the kinds of problems that we have now, not finding a way to convince management that a formula must be devised here and now rather than wait three years from now when a new form of electronic marble will have arrived. In 2008, he begged SAG members to vote to authorize a strike. Like the writers who had gone on strike the previous year, actors believed they were being shortchanged as more content went digital, even as studios argued there was no way to foresee whether the digital business would succeed. What all of these, uh, what, what all of those with weak knees failed to acknowledge, Asner wrote in a December op-ed for the Times that year, is that the business plan for new media is being written right now, and that what we agreed to now will become the template that the industry will cling to going forward no obligation to make charitable revisions. This deal will take billions of dollars out of actors' pockets in the same way our bad deal in home video and DVDs has cost actors $4.5 billion in lost compensation over the last 27 years. Though the 2008 negotiations were bitter and long, SAG did not take a strike vote and a deal was ratified in June 2009, a year after the old contract had expired. Now, it would seem, Actors find themselves in the situation that Asner predicted, once again attempting to force studios to address in a meaningful way the fact that the entertainment business has radically changed in a, in a way costly to the people who create the actual entertainment. I can't imagine Asner would be happy about being proven correct, again, but I know exactly what he'd be saying. Hold their feet to the fire now, or you'll be right back where you started next time around. That was Ed Asner's ghost is raising his eyebrows by Mary McNamara. From the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, June 8, 2023. And now we have a story from the envelope section of the Los Angeles Times for June 1st, 2023. And this is called 
How high are the stakes? Natasha Lyonne and Ryan Johnson are our game to continue Parker face into their golden years. Story by Glenn Whip, photographed by Julian Ungano, and topography by Rosalie Monegro. Natasha Lyonne is laying in her credit cards, is laying her credit cards on the table along with her Nicorette and Tea Tree Therapy mint toothpicks. We're sitting in the back house of the Studio City office she shares with producing partner Maya Rudolph, and this emptying of pockets came as a response to talk of her moving, part-time at least, to L.A. Leona holds up her driver's license, emphasizing it was issued by the state of New York. And when I study the photo for a beat too long, she points at the picture and says, Just because I don't like right now doesn't mean that's not what I look like, Glenn. Do I come out on tour with you and say, Hey, Mr. Danzig, how come you don't always look like you do when you're on stage? Do you hear this, Root Beer? Root Beer, uh, Leon's longtime Maltipoo multi BFF, barks, sounding a note of disapproval. Leon and I met about 20 minutes ago, and from the moment we laid eyes on each other, she's been calling me Glenn Danzig, though there's precious little overlap between the heavy metal icon and myself. But Leon likes to free associate. Thoughts tumble forth, heavy on references to 70s movies, Elliot Gould, Bob Fosse, John Cassavetes, and possibly becoming a cyborg one day. Then she quit, smoke, that she quit smoking for the first time in her life a few weeks ago isn't necessarily helping her focus, she notes. It's confusing, you, you know what I mean, Leon says, comparing giving up nicotine to kicking heroin many years ago. It seems like the stakes are much lower. And yet, arguably, for your health, it might even be higher now. I should become an addiction specialist, she continues. I think I am. Like when you're a junkie, you're kicking dope all the time, so it's an ongoing nightmare. Like I strongly don't recommend heroin. There's one takeaway you can get from this conversation, and quitting cigarettes is weird as hell, but it seemed like a good window to try. On set, I behave like a young Bob Fosse, and when I say young, I mean middle-aged. I mean, almost dead, Bob Fosse. She pauses. Listen, I could start off again at any time, but I'm not getting any younger. I'd like to still be making poker face when I'm old and just sort of shuffling around, you know? So why not try? Who doesn't want to see Leon making poker face well into her golden years? Every generation needs its version of Peter Falk's Lieutenant Columbo, and Leon staked an early claim to that title with the first season of her terrific mystery thriller series, which premiered earlier this year on Peacock. Leon plays Charlie Kale, a young woman possessing a superpower. She always knows when people are lying. Circumstances force her to move from town to town, where she uses her intuition to solve crimes. Each self-contained episode delivers a new homicide, you really don't want Charlie showing, showing up where you live, along with a different set of guest stars. The likes of Nick Nolte, Chloe Sevigny, Hong Chow, and Joseph Gordon-Levitt among them. Ryan Johnson, no stranger to mis uh, mysteries with his Knives Out movies, uh, created Poker Face as a showcase for Leon. The two met through Johnson's wife, film historian Karina Longworth. Leon loves Longworth's You Must Remember This podcast, and years ago wanted to adapt this, uh, the episode focused on Lena Horne and Paul Robeson, and the Hollywood blacklist into a project. It never got off the ground, but the friendship endured, leading, her, leading to her connection with Johnson. He had been toying with the idea of a case of the week TV show, and in Lyon, 
He believed he had an actor that audiences would love to hang with on a weekly basis. You need to find somebody who genuinely has that spark of charisma on screen, and that's a rare coin, Johnson said by phone, mentioning Falk and James Garner in the Rockford Files. When I saw Natasha in the Netflix series Russian Doll, it clicked for me. That effortless charisma just comes across on the screen. I think the way two people click creatively has much to do with how they're different as how they're the same, Johnson continues. And our temperaments fall into a peanut butter and chocolate situation. She's not the person you see on screen, but her brain operates at a much higher frequency than mine. Is it a frequency that only root beer can hear? Possibly. Johnson says he could only watch and marvel when Leon directed and starred in the standout Poker Face episode, The Orpheus Syndrome, a macabre slice of horror that doubled as a love letter to Oscar-winning VFX artist Phil Tippett and also featured Leon running around in a horse costume. Sometimes when actors direct themselves, they'll lament the multitasking and perhaps scale back their screen time. Leon, Johnson says, embrace the overload because their brain needs that. She's into puzzles and word games, and she'll do like eight of them at once, Johnson says. She has an endless capacity to keep multiple plates spinning. Not even capacity, it's a need. I heard David Mamet say this, that writers write for the same reason beavers cut wood, to stop their teeth from aching. That's Natasha and life. When I asked Leon what she's currently working on, and remember this is what she calls her downtime, she says writing a few TV shows writing some movies with friends, reworking a movie script she finished some time ago, and writing a book. And in the past half hour, she suggested that we team up with Root Beer to invent a better herbal cigarette because those honeysuckle things are just the worst. Leon also just turned 44 and explains that she's dealing with a midlife crisis by embracing a few new hobbies. She has taken up surfing for one. Pressed for other pastimes, Leon removes her black baseball cap, runs her hands through her red haystack of hair, and laughs. That's really it. I'm a surfer. I'm a writer. I don't leave the house. I play the spelling bee, the crossword, the wordy. I read books. I swim laps in my pool. You get the idea. I had a good run. And I'm grateful to go out on a high note. She starts to laugh. This isn't me retiring, but I just feel like I've left my young life and this is my, and my entry into midlife. I feel like I did well by my youth. I didn't have any movies left. There were no stones left unturned in my youth. Leon is now hoping to enter what she calls her Penny Marshall Sidney Pollack phase, meaning she'd mostly direct and write as she did as well as star on Russian Doll and answer the phone when someone like Johnson calls asking her to act. Yes, a second season of Poker Face is in the works. She's not sure how long she'll stay in L.A., saying that she's sort of trying on t-shirts and seeing what it feels like to have the sunshine on you. This is my version of a t-shirt, Leon says, pointing at her short-sleeved cashmere sweater. She shows off her shoes. They're loafers. This is my L.A. outfit right now. I'm super L.A. That said, she and Rupert need to head back home to Hollywood to talk to a landscaper about the area around the swimming pool. Leon again emphasizes that her life still feels transitory. Outside of a bed and some kettlebell weights, a giant Columbo poster, a gift from Johnson, is the only substantial piece in her house. 
I'm L.A. the way that Elliot Gould and Alva Brooks in the 1970s were, Leon says, packing up. She recalls another lifetime when she was a teenager sitting in the back row at the New Beverly drinking a 40 in a brown bag and watching Casavetes movies. Life, this whole setup, is so absurd, absurdist, Leon says. It's just so weird that it was so circuitous to get here. In a strange way, I can see now from a bird's eye view that I, that I needed all that life experience to actually have something to say on the other side. That's why I love playing Charlie, she continues, circling back to her poker face role. She makes a home for herself wherever she goes. I will forever identify with the experience of the outsider and wanting to make all the orphans feel safe together. I love that she's fighting for the little guy existing on society's fringes. So I, I so relate to that. It makes me happy to put that energy out there. We part ways. Yesterday's ashtrays gathered dust on the patio. That was How High Are the Stakes? Story by Glenn Whip, photographed by Julia Ungano, topography by Rosalie Monegro, from V envelope section of the Los Angeles Times for June 1st, 2023. All right, here's something from a site called Complex.com, and this is called Mark Zuckerberg Refutes Report He Lost Consciousness During Jiu-Jitsu Match. Mark Zuckerberg participated in jiu-jitsu matches earlier this year where he won silver and gold medals by Tara Mahadevan. For June 6, 2023. Mark Zuckerberg's recent passion is jujitsu. A recent article from the New York Times uh, discussed his new endeavor in depth, also noting that the Meta founder and CEO had lost consciousness during a match in May, early May. Following that report, Zuckerberg reportedly <clears throat> emailed the publication writing that never happened for people. In the original article, the Times spoke with Jose Lucas Costa da Silva, a veteran jiu-jitsu fighter who refereed Zuckerberg's May 6th match. Costa da Silva said that he heard Zuckerberg snoring, which indicated that he fainted from a chokehold. This is something we are trained to know, Costa da Silva said, adding that Zuckerberg was enjoying the moment. Both Zuckerberg and one of his coaches, Dave Camarillo, reached out to the Times to dispel the rumor. Camarillo said that Zuckerberg was actually grunting, not snoring. The 38-year-old won both silver and gold medals at the tournament, which he shared on Instagram. Camarillo told Instagram to, uh, took to Instagram to applaud Zuckerberg's achievements. It's inspiring to see someone who, who so known challenge themselves in a new arena, he wrote. At Zuck, I am honored to train with you, teach you, and learn from you. You are truly an amazing person. That was Mark Zuckerberg refutes report he lost consciousness during jiu-jitsu match by Tara Mahadevan from Complex.com, June 6, 2023. All right, here is something from JewishJournal.com. Cynthia Wheel, Grammy-winning songwriter, dies at 82. Along with Barry Mann, her husband of 62 years, she wrote some of the most iconic songs of the 20th century by Brian Fishback, June 6, 2023. Songwriter Cynthia Weil, W-E-I-L, died June 1st at the age of 82. From the 1960s to the 90s, Weil, with her husband of 62 years, Barry Mann, 
wrote over 80 chart-topping songs for some of the most iconic singers in the world. Wee was born in New York on October 18, 1940. Her mother, Dorothy Mendez, had Sephardic roots that may have dated back to the Spanish Inquisition. Her father, Morris Wheel, was the son of Orthodox Polish immigrants and owned two furniture stores. They married in 1929 and lived in Manhattan. In Scott R. Bernard's 2003 book, Stars of David, Rock and Roll's Jewish Stories, Wheel remembers growing up in a kosher home with big Shabbat dinners and, and, uh, and celebrating holidays at a conservative synagogue. Wheel was eight when her father died, and religion became less of a force in her life. She attended Sunday school, but did not enjoy it, and promised herself that no child of mine would ever have to go through the same. Wheel and Mann married in 1961. That same year, Tony Orlando had a fifth, number 15 hit with their song, Bless You. As part of the New York-based songwriters based out of the Brill Building, where they worked alongside other, uh, other songwriters, including Carol King and her husband Jerry Goffin, Bert Bachrach and Hal David, Mike Lieber and Jerry Stoller, Jeff Barry and L. Greenwich, Doc Pumice and Mort Schumann, they were one of the songwriting team's writing songs produced by Phil Spector on his Phillies record label. The Crystals, Uptown 1962, number 18, he, He's Sure the Boy I Love, 1962, number 11. The Ronettes, Walking in the Rain, 1963, number 23. And probably the best-known song, You've Lost That Love and Feeling, which topped the charts for the Righteous Brothers in 1964. They also wrote hits for Edie Gourmet, Blame It on the Bossa Nova, 1962, number 7, The Drifters on Broadway, a number nine hit written with Lieber and Stoller in 1963, and later a number seven hit for George Benson in 1978. Man and Wheel's ability to write in different styles allowed them to thrive in the post-Beatles pop world. The Animals took their We've Gotta Get Out of This Place to number 13 in 1965. That year, Paul Revere and the Raiders had two of their biggest hits with uh, Man Wheel's songs, Kicks, number four, and Hungry number six, and wrote another chart-topping hit for the Righteous Brothers, You're My Soul and Inspiration. In 1968, they had a number 22 hit with The Shape of Things to Come, performed by Max Frost and the Troopers, written for the teen exploitation cult favorite Wild in the Streets. Wheel and Man songs were also recorded by Dusty Springfield, The Monkees, The Partridge Family, B.J. Thomas, I Just Can't Help Believing, a, nine, a number 9 hit in 1970, recorded a year later by Elvis Presley, and Rock and Roll Lullaby, a, 19, a number 15 hit in 1972, The Grassroots, and Blood, Sweat, and Tears. They had one of their biggest hits with Dolly Parton's Here You Come Again, number 3 in 1977, and in 1986. Linda Ronstadt and James Ingham had a number 2 hit with their Somewhere Out There, written with James Horner for the movie An American Tale. Their songs ranged in style from dreamy pop to hard rock, from country lilt to jazzy swing. Wheel, who was a lyricist of the team, was also one of the first songwriters to confront modern themes. Racism in Uptown, Drugs in Kicks, and Broadway, and in Broadway, The Hard Road to Success. Wheel and Mann were inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame in 1987. In 2010, they were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, where they received the Ahmed Erdogan Award, which is given to non-performing industry professionals who, through their dedicated belief and support of artists and their music, 
have had a major influence on the creative development and growth of rock and roll and music that has impacted youth culture. In her acceptance speech, Will said the award was twice as sweet because my greatest teacher, my greatest inspiration, my greatest collaborator has always been my husband and partner, Barry Mann. I think what's held us together has been this great bond of creativity. It's been rock and roll, so I want to thank the music for giving us our life together. Wheel is survived by husband Mann, now age 84, and daughter Dr. Jen Mann, a psychotherapist in Los Angeles. That was Cynthia Wheel, Grammy-winning songwriter, dies at 82 by Brian Fishback from JewishJournal.com for June 6, 2023. And now we're going to read some articles from the L.A. Jewish Home from May 18th through May 31st, 2023, Volume 1, Number 16, Your Favorite Bi-Weekly Family Read. And we go to the Week in News section, and we start off with a couple of global news stories. First one, Long Live the King, author unknown. Last Saturday, after 70 years of waiting, King Charles III finally took the throne. The most dramatic part of the coronation of Britain's newest monarch took place in private behind a three-sided screen, where the Dean of Westminster poured a holy oil from the ampulla, a gold eagle-shaped flask, onto the coronation spoon, and then the Archbishop of Canterbury anointed Charles on his head, chest, and hands, according to the Church of England's liturgy. Once here emerged, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, placed St. Edward's crown upon Charles III's head. It was the only time Charles will ever wear St. Edward's crown, which is reserved for the coronation of a new monarch. The crown was made for the new king's namesake, Charles II, in 1661. After crowning Charles, Welby shouted, God save the king. Those in attendance repeated the words. After that, Camilla was crowned queen. She was also anointed with the holy oil before having Queen Mary's crown placed on her head. The royal members of the household made their appearances, including Prince Harry, who joined the festivities without his wife Meghan, who stayed in the United States with their children. Prince William, the next in line for the throne, pledged his allegiance to the new king. His son, Prince George IX, was a page during the ceremony holding a corner of the king's cape. After the coronation, the king and queen along with some royal family members, greeted the throngs of well-wishers from the balcony. The weather did not disappoint, bringing out the typical London gray and dripping skies during the day. On Sunday during the coronation concert, Prince William told his father, We are all so proud of you. He invoked his grandmother, the late Queen Elizabeth II. I know she is up there fondly, keeping an eye on us, and she would be a very proud mother, he said. He added that his grandmother had called coronations a declaration of our hopes for the future. That was Long Live the King, author unknown. This next one is called Iran Smuggled Weapons into Syria in Earthquake Aid, author unknown. Iran smuggled weapons and military equipment into Syria using humanitarian aid shipments as a cover following a devastating earthquake there in February. Intelligence from both the United States and Israel suggests that Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps used convoys from Iran to co covertly transport arms and ammunition into Syria. Intelligence officials believe the weapons were destined for Iranian proxy groups in Syria who have repeatedly attacked U.S. military personnel stationed there as part of the anti-ISIS coalition. 
the humanitarian assistance of Iran to Syria was used as an umbrella of moving weapons capabilities into the region, the Israeli defense official said. The Washington Post reported on the weapons shipments on Sunday, citing a leaked in U.S. intelligence document. President Joe Biden has ordered several airstrikes against uh, Iran-backed militia groups in Syria, including as recently as March, when an American contractor was killed and five U.S. service members were injured after a suspected Iranian drone targeted a coalition military base. Foreign aid poured into Syria and Turkey after February's earthquake, which killed more than 50,000 people. The magnitude 7.8 quake was one of the strongest to strike the area in more than a century, with Turkey's Disaster and Emergency Management Agency calling for international help. The United States has approximately 900 troops in Syria as part of the ongoing mission to defeat ISIS. But those forces spread across several bases in north northeast Syria have become a frequent target for Iran and its proxies in the region, which can launch drone uh, or rocket attacks against U.S. positions. Iran threatens to push the Middle East into regional instability by supporting terrorists and proxy forces, Joint Chiefs Chair General Mark Milley told lawmakers in March. In recent weeks, airstrikes said to be from Israel targeting Iranian-linked groups in Syria have intensified. An attack in late March attributed to Israel killing to Israel killed two military advisors with the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. There was Iran smuggled weapons into Syria in earthquake aid, author unknown. Those two are global news stories. Here's an Israel news story. D family killers eliminated, author unknown. The two Palestinians accused of killing Lucy D, 48, and her daughters Maya, 20, and Rina, 15, in a shooting attack last month were shot dead by Israeli troops in Nablus along with a third Palestinian gunman. The Shin Bet Security Agency, Israel Police, and Israel Defense Forces said troops entered the Nablus Old City in order to arrest Hassan Katania, Katani, Katani and Moaz al-Mazri, the Hamas terrorists who allegedly carried out the deadly attack on April 7th. The officers were dressed like Palestinian men and women. Members of the police elite Yamam counterterrorism unit surrounded the home where the two terrorists were believed to be hiding. The forces fired a shoulder-launched missile at it, according to Palestinian media, in a tactic known as a pressure cooker to flush out wanted suspects. The two terrorists were then killed along with another gunman, Ibrahim Jabir, who had aided the murderers in, the, in hiding them. A senior IDF Central Command officer told reporters that the operation on Thursday was carried out with precision and professionalism, leading to a quick raid with no injuries despite being nearly a month since the deadly attack. We consider this matter very important, the time that passes from the moment of the attack to the elimination, the speed with which the incident is dealt with is what thwarts terrorism, so time is important, the officer said. It is important for us to make it clear to the other side that uh, there are no cities of, of refuge anywhere in the West Bank. Even places that they apparently think are safe are not, he added. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu praised Israeli security forces for settling the score with the alleged killers. Our message to those who harm us and those trying to harm us is that it may take a day, a week, or a month, but be sure that we'll settle the score with you. It doesn't matter where you try to hide, we'll find you. Whoever harms us forfeits his life, 
the premier said in a statement. That was Deep Family Killers Eliminated, author unknown. That's an Israel news story. This is a national news story. New airline rules, author unknown. It's a pain in the neck when passengers are stranded when, uh, when their flights are canceled or delayed. Now the Biden administration is hoping to write new regulations that will require airlines to compensate air travelers and cover their meals in hotel rooms if they are stranded for reasons within the airline's control. The compensation would be in addition to ticket refunds when the airline is at fault for a flight being canceled or significantly delayed. It would give consumers in the United States protections similar to those in the European Union. Currently, when an airline cancels a flight for any reason, consumers can demand a refund of the unused part of their ticket and certain extras that they might have paid to the airline, such as fees for checking a bag or getting a seat assignment. Airlines often try to persuade consumers to accept a travel voucher instead of a refund. After widespread flight disruptions last summer, the Transportation Department posted an online dashboard to let consumers compare airline policies on refunds and compensation. Biden and Buttigieg credited the dashboard with pushing the 10 largest U.S. airlines to promise to provide cash or vouchers for meals when a carrier-caused cancellation forces passengers to wait at least three hours for another flight. Nine of the 10 all but Frontier Airlines also promised to under, under those circumstances to pay for accommodations for passengers stranded overnight. That was New Airline Rules. Author unknown, that was a national news story. This is a local news story. We have two no local news stories coming up. This is called Jewish Heritage Month Regional Connector. Author unknown. The Jewish community has been rooted in Los Angeles since the city's beginning. And still today, the city works to preserve and honor Jewish culture and its impact in Los Angeles. You can see evidence of this with the construction of LA's, LA Metro's Regional Connector. The first temple and oldest synagogue in Los Angeles is the Congregation B'nai B'rith. It was built in 4th Street, now Broadway, near 3rd Street in 1873. While the building itself was eventually knocked down, the location marks the foundation for the growth of the Jewish community in Los Angeles that extended through a time when anti-Semitism spread across the nation. In July 2014, LA Metro began constructing the regional connector. It is a 1.9-mile light rail subway in downtown Los Angeles. Underground construction proved to be more difficult than expected because many historical structures that exist underground were not on any city plans. The regional connector contractors team encountered many unexpected structures, and one of them was the original brick-and-mortar temple of Congregation B'nai B'rith. Instead of continuing the tunneling operation, LA Metro and the RCC halted construction immediately. Archaeologists were called in to examine what was left of the Gothic Revival-style worship center that served some 40 Jewish families in the late 1800s. It was decided that in order to properly honor the deep-rooted Jewish heritage of the area, construction in this area would stop. They brought in a Metro-approved archaeologist to determine the status of the structure itself. That process took over a month. In the end, they found that the structure was not sound and removed it. The site was also deemed as of cultural and historical importance, so the plaque was created to commemorate it uh, above ground. Los Angeles's robust transportation plans include budgets and construction schedules that continue to be a major priority for public agencies and communities alike. 
but the biggest priority has always been and will continue to be preserving the rich history of the people who built this city and will make it the vibrant cultural center it is today. And that was apparent when the team paused construction for over a month. When you eventually step out of the newly finished metro station on Broadway, make sure to look down at the sidewalk. There lies a plaque honoring the oldest synagogue in Los Angeles, Congregation B'nai B'rith. That was Jewish Heritage Month, Jewish Heritage Month Regional Connector, author unknown. And this next one is called Beaumont Shapiro announced as new rabbi in residence at the Skirball Cultural Center, author unknown. Rabbi Beaumont Shapiro will join the Skirball Cultural Center in the newly created position of rabbi in residence. His new role will commence on June 5, 2023. Rabbi Shapiro will assist at the Skirball and its expression of Jewish values through its daily operations and robust programming. Rabbi Shapiro will also provide guidance on topics of interest from Jewish history, ritual life, and philosophy, and will represent the Skirball to the larger Jewish community. Rabbi Shapiro commented that Skirball is uniquely positioned amongst organizations nationwide to engage people from across the spectrum of Jewish life and particular importance in this day and age non-Jews as well in exploring our connections to one another and our greater community so that together we can build a more just society. More recently, Shapiro served as rabbi at Wilshire Boulevard Temple in Los Angeles, a career that spanned 20 years. For the past 12 years, he served as rabbi before that as a rabbinic intern, song leader, and educator. Prior to Wilshire Boulevard Temple, Shapiro was the youth director at Temple Israel of Hollywood. Shapiro received his rabbinic ordination in 2011 from Hebrew Union College, Jewish Institute of Religion, where he also earned a degree in Hebrew letters in 2009. Additionally, he holds degrees in religious studies and cinema television from the University of Southern California. That was Bowman Shapiro announced as new rabbi in residence at the Skirball Cultural Center, author unknown, and this is another uh, local news one. This is called Zavi Reisman to receive honorary degree, author unknown. Corporate CEO, philanthropist, Torah scholar, and Toro chairman to serve as keynote speaker, keynote speaker at commencement for Toro University's Lander Colleges. Rabbi Zivi Reisman of Los Angeles will receive an honorary degree and serve as commencement speaker for Toro University's Lander Colleges. The graduation will be held on June 4 at Lincoln Center in Manhattan. Reisman joined the board of Toro University 20 years ago and has served as chairman of Toro since 2020. Reisman is also president and CEO of American International Industries, one of the largest manufacturers and importers of cosmetics and beauty products in the world. His company sells wholesale to beauty suppliers and retailers in the U.S. and around the world. Among Reisman's myriad accomplishments includes authoring numerous Hebrew sephorim and English-language Jewish titles. One of his seminal works is an in-depth exploration of the halachos pertaining to fertility treatments and organ transplantation. This and a myriad of other topics are at the core of Ratz Kadzivi, a 21-volume series on Jewish law and thought. A role model for integrating a life of Torah study and stellar achievements in the business world, Zavi Reisman is a true renaissance man, said Dr. Alan Kaddish, Toro President. 
Reisman was born in Europe and moved to Israel as a school-age child where he earned a degree in political science and economics at Tel Aviv University, as well as rabbinic ordination from Rabbi Yezikel Sarna of the Chevron Yeshiva. Reisman also served in the Israel Defense Forces. Reisman says he owes his success to his father, Rav Yehoshua Heschel Reisman, a Magid Shur in Europe who escaped Nazi brutality in labor and concentration camps. Rav Yeshua Heschel later pursued secular education upon moving to Israel and entered the business world, buying a flour mill that the family still owns and operates today. Rav Yehoshua Heschel exemplified the values Zavi Reisman has adopted through, throughout his life and career. My father never stopped teaching Torah while pursuing knowledge and earning a living. That's what his legacy to, that was his legacy to me, says Reisman. I learned from him that if you want to stay grounded in Torah, you need to give a shur, S-H-I-U-R, and teach others so you, you yourself can learn in depth. I never called myself a rabbi. I am an Ish Asakim, a businessman who learns and teaches Torah every day. The Torah teaches everything including the right way to conduct business. My Torah study has sharpened my mind and contributed my ability to think strategically in business. Reisman believes the key to success in both life and business is to focus on con and concentrate on the task at hand. When you're learning Torah, your mind should be, shouldn't be racing and thinking about your to-do list at work and when, you're, and when you're involved in business, concentrate on what's in front of you. People who accomplish a lot have a plan, so be sure to design a plan for what you want to do each day. You don't have to give up on Torah or business success. Just plan where you are going to focus on each. If you need to start working at 5 a.m., then plan to learn at 4 a.m. and stick to it. I recommend learning something in depth that really speaks to you so you recapture the joy of learning that you had in yeshiva and sustain it as you move into professional life, explains Reisman. When it comes to succeeding in the business world, slow and steady is the way to build. Learn everything you can about the space you're working in, conduct as much research as, as possible, and don't be afraid to roll up your sleeves and do menial tasks. Respect everyone in the organization. I don't call people employees. Everyone in my company is a colleague because I have something to learn from each of them, shares Reisman. Reisman urges today's young people to remember their past, and their roots. Take your values and your parents' teachings with you as you enter the professional world and you'll succeed in the present and into the future. There was Zavi Reisman to receive honorary degree, author unknown, and those are all local news articles, and that is those are all from the section The Week in News. We now turn to the Around the Community section. Starting with this one, Yeshiva Yavne 7th grade students finished in the top five at the National Kedon Finals. Uh, author unknown. Yeshiva Yavne is proud to share our nachas with the community regarding the accomplishments of two of our 7th grade tal Talmidim. On Sunday, April 30, Akiva Schreier and his twin brother Rafi placed third and fifth in the National Kedon HaTanakh Finals, respectively. They were the highest scoring 7th graders in the country in the middle school division. The ones who placed 1st, 2nd, and 4th were all 8th grade students. The National 
Hedon HaTanakh test students on the details of stories in several Sefer Tanakh. Akiva and Rafi took preliminary exams throughout the school year and scored impeccably on each of them, qualifying the boys for an invitation to the national finals last month in New York. This is the second year the boys have competed and won. Last year, Rafi placed first and Akiva placed second in the sixth grade division. Yeshivat Yavne is incredibly proud of Akiva and Rafi for their dedication and commitment to Talmud Torah, their enthusiasm and excellence to take on the responsibility of learning additional Torah lishma and doing so with great simcha has been an inspiration to the entire yeshiva. We look forward to seeing their continued uh, Torah growth and can't wait for them to compete in the Hidon once again next year. There was Yeshiva Yavna's seventh grade students finished in the top five at the National Hidon Finals. Author unknown. This next one is called Shavua Hatzmat with B'nai Akiva, author unknown. To celebrate Yom Hatzmat and Israel's 75th birthday, B'nai Akiva of L.A. was honored to host the entire L.A. community for a festive and celebratory ceremony that included a student-led ceremony, a video that included good wishes from our past volunteers who are now spending their year abroad learning in seminaries and yeshivot or serving in the IDF, and concluded with a live concert from the one and only Simcha Lehner. With over 600 people in attendance, this was definitely one of the greatest ways for our community to celebrate. The celebrations continued with Shavu Hatzmat celebrations for kids of all ages. Our middle school Hanihim partied at an Israeli-themed Jeopardy game at the home of Sarah and Alan Sternberg. With categories ranging from the food of Israel to the history of Israel, teams were competing all night while learning the history of Israel and its people. The Shavuot Hatzmat celebrations continued the following week for our second and third Hanahim, who had their own event at the home of Shanna and Mickey Amster on Monday, May 1st, and then the fourth and fifth graders on Wednesday, May 3rd, at the home of Karen and Dan Katz. Overall, the Yom Hatzmat programming organized by B'nai Akiva of L.A., Amos Shava Alivi, was a tremendous success. The events provided participants with uh, a deeper understanding and appreciation of Israel's history, culture, and achievements, all while fostering a sense of pride and connection to the Jewish homeland. These types of programs, pro programming events are essential for strengthening Jewish identity and maintaining a strong and vibrant community. That's Shavuot Hatzmat with B'nai Akiva. Author unknown. This next one is called Link Men Bond During Scenic Hike. Author unknown. On Sunday, May 7th, about 50 intrepid men and teens hiked for 4.5 miles on a scenic trail in Pacific Palisades along Los Leones Canyon. The hike was led and organized by Mr. Zach Rabinowitz, one of the new, newer members of Link and an avid outdoorsman. Besides some breathtaking views of Hashem's creations, the hikers were treated to inspirational Divrei Torah by Rabbis Brander, Brol, and Stark, who joined in the bonding building activity. The hikers are eagerly anticipating the next venue to conquer. That was Link Men Bond During Scenic Hike, author unknown. And this next one is MX Students Participate in Model UN, author unknown. This year, the Model UN Conference... Uh, which took place on Sunday, April 23rd, was comprised of four participating schools, including Hillel, Maimonides, Yavne, 
and Emek. Emek was privileged to have Mrs. Sherlyn Niamir coach our middle, our middle school boys and girls teams in preparation for the competition. The participants spent months researching, organizing, comprehending, writing, speaking, and drafting documents in training for the MUN conference. Each student practiced the skills of professional decorum, public speaking, and taking a leadership role. Moreover, the students learned the importance of compromise and negotiation with their peers. The participants and their coach met, met twice, twice weekly, discussing and presenting their findings to one another, as well as practicing the delivery and negotiation of those findings. The girls' team consisted of Odelia Amini, Ashira Dorfin, honorable mention, Aviva Yashapur, top delegate, Daniela Menegin, Lemora Elisha, Nessa Torbati, and Zara Natniamer. Their topic was Awareness and Programs for Adolescent Mental Health through the World Health Organization. The boys' team was made up of Aaron Pezeski, Baron Konzevoy, Ethan Schwartzbaum, Malkiel Schiffman, top delegate, Shamay Perez, honorable mention, and Yeshe Dulitz. The committee was the United Nations Development Program, and the topic was Empowering Youth Economically. A big hakaras hatov to Mrs. Nyamir for all her dedication and hard work to make sure our students were so well prepared. That was MX students participate in Model UN, author unknown. This next one is called United Hatsola Event Remembers Haim Elephant, author unknown. On Wednesday evening, May 3rd, community members from all over Los Angeles came to pay tribute to Haim Elephant and support one of his favorite causes, United Hatsala. Haim was tragically taken from his, from his loving wife, Miriam, and four small children just after Purim of this year, and the community has been rallying around the family ever since. Haim and Miriam were in talks with United Hatsala to plan this event before his passing, and Miriam wanted to continue her husband's legacy by hosting it in his memory. The night was emceed by Michael Bernstein, a friend of the Elephant family. Yoni Wintner, also a friend of the Elephant family, spoke about Haim's passion and love for community and tzedakah. Eli Beer, founder and president of United Hatzalah of Israel, shared an inspirational story and spoke about the importance of keeping a person's memory alive. The highlight of the evening was when the Elephant's eight-year-old son, Shaya, donated $200 towards the purchase of an ambuco cycle in Haim's member, memory. He is clearly walking in his father's footsteps and making him proud. It was truly a night to remember, with the full bar courtesy of the cask, a gray stable from Shana of the Grays LA, and a kumzitz with Moshi, Storch, and Rabbi Shua Rose. If you would like to help sponsor a life-saving ambicycle in Israel in loving memory of Haim elephants, please do so at www.israelrescue.org slash Haim, C-H-A-I-M. For any questions or to get more involved, please contact Carolyn Kangavari at Carolyn K at IsraelRescue.org. That was United Hatzalah event remembers Haim Elephant, author unknown. <clears throat> this next one is called Link Boys Bond Over Basketball, author unknown. On Sunday afternoon, April 30th, over a dozen young men from Link's youth program bonded over basketball and s'mores 
at the spacious backyard of Link's Mr. and Mrs. Ben and Neva, Ta uh, Neva Taylor. The boys ranged from age from fifth, 5 to 15, and the whole program was directed by Mr. Gabe Silverstein, who coordinates the Link's Shabbos activities for young men. After some vigorous exercise on the basketball court, the boys retreated to roasted marshmallows, s'mores, and some cold drinks. This was another in the series of special Sunday events designed by Link's creative youth director, Mrs. Dina Rahm. That was Link Boys Bond Over Basketball, author unknown. And this next one is called Celebration 75 Hillel Hebrew Academy Lag Baomer Concert, author unknown. Nestled in the Hollywood Mountains sits the historic Ford Amphitheater, the perfect place for Hillel's, place for Hillel's Celebration 75 Lag Baomer Concert. Celebration 75 was an interactive musical experience that brought together the past, present, and the future generations of Hillel. The show featured Avshalom Katz, the former Hillel choir director for over 20 years, and his two sons, Eitan and Rav Shlomo Katz. The sold-out crowd had Jewish Angelinos coming together with love, energy, and an incredible show of Jewish unity. Throughout the night, Hillel students sang, danced, and shared words of Torah, while the 40-foot video wall displayed meaningful memories from the last 75 years. Everyone present felt the joy, the emotion, the history, and most of all, the celebration. This will surely be a night Los Angeles will never forget. That was Celebration 75, Hillel Hebrew Academy, Lag Baomer Concert, author unknown. And this next one is called Shloshim Lezecher, Lucy, Maya, and Rina D., author unknown. A gathering of 30 women joined together in commemoration of the Shloshim of Lucy, Maya, and Rina D., who were killed by terrorists on Kol Hamoed Pesach. The evening included an inspirational shur by Rabbi Shaf on increasing our Ahavad Yisrael, followed by Tehillim. Personal, memory, personal memories of Rina and her family were shared by Elanit and Emuna Zakowski. Emuna a 10th grader at Eula spoke about the special and unique friendship she and Rena shared when Emuna lived in Israel. The girls walked home from school together every day, and on days that Emuna went to the D home, Lucy would greet them with food on the table. Emuna felt welcome and at the home in their, Israel, in their house, and she'd often be invited to stay for sleepovers. Rena was cheerful, positive, fun to be around, and a wonderful friend. A letter of friendship that Rena had written to Immuna was read and brought, to, uh, brought tears to those in the room. Ilanit recalled memories of a Shabbat meal in the D home, emphasizing the modesty and sincerity of the family and their commitment to one another, the family had. She shared messages of the Kizuk, explaining how Rav Leo D stressed the importance of unity among Av Yisrael in both sharing in one another's simcha and pain together. It was a touching evening and has been recorded. May Hashem bring comfort to the D family and may these three holy Neshamas have an Aliyah. That was Shloshima, Lezeher, Lucy, Maya, and Rina D, author unknown. And we have this one Spivak Hebrew Academy celebrates Lag Baomer and Yom Yerushalayim, author unknown. Spivak Hebrew Academy Elementary Schools. Students journeyed on a very special virtual tour 
through Yerushalayim, kicking off preparations for the upcoming day of Yom Yerushalayim. They gathered together and followed a tour guide from the Stand With Us organization via Zoom. They were led through the old city, ending the tour directly in front of the Kotel Wall. The students were asked to say Abraha, prayers for family and friends, as they were standing at the holiest site to the Jewish people. Following the tour, Spivak students enjoyed Lag Be'omer with sing-alongs and fall bonfires. The early childhood classes gathered around the bonfire and sang together with the, the school director, Cecily Wiesenfeld. They listened to the stories of Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai with the takeaway of the utmost importance of the Ahavata Lerecha Kamucha, loving your friends and like, like you love yourself. Elementary students sang and danced together around the bonfire. S'mores snacks were given to enhance and enjoy the sweet spirit of the holiday. Additionally, Spivak elementary students have been preparing for our Israel Extravaganza event on May 17 in honor of Yom Yerushalayim and Israel's 75th anniversary. They are presenting a play of prominent figures in ancient and modern Israel history, from Avraham Avino to David Ben-Gurion. Elementary girls uh, are preparing a Dag Lanut flag dance, along with a choir led by our music director, Hodea Singer. We are very excited to celebrate Yom Yerushalayim with our families through song, dance, and play. The Spivak Hebrew Academy celebrates Lag B'Omer and Yom Yerushalayim author unknown, and this final one is called Valley Torah Girls High School Ignites the Spirit of Lag of the Omer with a Bonfire Celebration, author unknown. As the sun dipped below the horizon, the Valley Torah Girls High School came alive with an anticipation, with anticipation and excitement. Students and staff gathered under a canopy of stars, uniting to commemorate the joyous festival of Lag the Omer with a spectacular bonfire event. Themed Time to Ignite, the celebration hosted by Dr. Rosenberg offered attendees an unforgettable evening of spiritual connection, enthusiasm, and unity. With flames flickering and crackling, the bonfire served at the heart of the, as the heart of the event, drawing participants together and setting the stage for an evening of inspiration. After enjoying delicious refreshments, students and staff transitioned into a moving kumzitz, where voices joined in harmony to sing traditional songs and melodies which left students and staff feeling ignited in their celebration of Lag Be'omer and gearing up in preparation for Shavuos and the acceptance of the Torah. That was Valley Torah Girls High School Ignites the Spirit of Lag Be'omer with a Bonfire Celebration. Author unknown, and those are all from the Around the Community section. All right, now this next uh, section is called Happenings in the Hood with Tim uh, Zvi and the Doc. And this is called Best Kiddish Club in L.A. Part 2. In September of 2021, Mishpaka Magazine featured an op-ed by Rabbi Yisrael Motzen of Nir Tamid in Baltimore titled Kiddish Club is Not the Problem. In it, he cites the ubiquitous struggle among all Orthodox shuls in managing their Kiddish clubs. He goes on to explain that each shul has to create its own unique solution for its congregation and its covert club. It's a wonderful piece that we recommend to our, re our readership. LA is certainly no different. Each shul has created its own version of this ancient institution and the interplay between the Ba'al Habatim, 
Rabbanim and Kiddush Club is an eternal struggle between what works and what does not. Regardless of the interplay at each shul, it seems to create quite the buzz with this Kiddush Club review. There are those who loved what we're doing and those who did not. There were those who felt slighted and those who we never heard from. Nevertheless, we continued our quest to identify the best Kiddush Club in L.A. by heading right across the street from West Side Shul to our Sephardic brothers at Mogan David. One might wonder if Sephardim uh, know about a Kiddush Club. After all, most believe that a Kiddush Club is an ancient Ashkenazi tradition. Or is it? We knew that the Mogim David crew were leaders when it came to an apparitif, but hearing, but hearing and Kugel? Well, they learned quickly. They have all the classic treats you want to see at a Kiddush Club. Herring and crackers, chocolate pigs in a blanket, and of course, to keep it real, Moroccan cigars. There was tequila, scotch, and class Sephardi Arak. We thought they'd nailed the food, but as it turned out, they were chefless. The shoes chef uh, Richard R.L. is very sick. They even said, uh, me shibarak for him before Kiddush. Richard's colerant is, by report, a masterpiece. In terms of location, Mogan's Kiddush Club meets in an isolated and protected uh, isolated area and protected by LA's finest off-duty patrolmen so that kids are not granted entry. We asked the president of the Kiddush Club what made it so special. Yes, we are a club. Yes, people pay a membership to help subsidize the costs, but all are welcome. We love when guests come. What a marvelous bunch of gentlemen they were. It was truly a warm and welcoming Kiddush Club, and we had a great time and look forward to coming back. The following week, we made our way to Beth Jacob. Beth Jacob most likely hosted uh, the first Kiddush Club in the hood sometime after 1954 when Rabbi Dogen uh, uh, moved the congregation to Beverly Hills and set the stage for what we consider our community. His impact and Yiddish guide in uh, all of our amazing institutions across L.A. is ever-present. We can only imagine what went on in those kiddish clubs back then. The vast majority of the members were likely Holocaust survivors just back from the ashes of Auschwitz, Bergen, Belsen, and Buchenwald, with possibly some American servicemen who liberated them. Maybe some of those regular members had kids fighting for the U.S. Armed Forces in Vietnam or Korea. Who could argue with having a kiddish club back then? Perhaps they would sneak away for a quick little schnapps, maybe a cracker, Certainly no colant, uh, kishka, or Moroccan cigars. Since that time, Beth Jacobs' Kiddush Club has been consistently evolving. We have heard that they have, they have something special and wanted to see for ourselves. Unfortunately, fate was not on our side. Out of respect for the visiting scholar, the Kiddush Club was curtailed. We can only imagine that in that week, it resembled the days of old. It was now 10.30 a.m., and the clock was ticking. We quickly figured that the only option would be Chabad of Sola. It was a beautiful day in L.A., so we walked past at least 13 other shoals with the smell of fresh colant uh, wooing, us in, in, wooing us in until we reached what turned out to be a Havaya of epic proportions. We made it to the door on La Sienega, where we are greeted by four Magin Am security guards decked out in full beards keys, a two-way and two-way radios hanging from their belts. 
and the warmest good Shabbos you have ever received. We instantly felt safe again after sidestepping the homeless encampments a few blocks before. Uh, entering the converted retail space, we quickly felt the warmth, smiles, and great vibes from Ehrlich Yedin. People began to come over to us with welcoming arms. Are you here to review our Kiddush Club? A strapping Habatnik in uh, Talas and Bakeshi uh, asked, Which one do you want to go to? He continued, You already missed the first one, but don't worry, we have three more. Presently, Sola Habat has multiple Minyanim uh, going on at the same time. The shul is not for Habatniks, it is a melting pot of Yedin. There is an incredible Sephardi minion that meets in a giant makeshift tent that is authentically reminiscent of Morocco, except for the piped-in AC returns. The room is fully outfitted with a Middle Eastern rug, an ornate chandelier hanging from the pole supporting the structure and stunning Sephardi Torahs. We mention the ambience here because the moment the children finish chanting after the Haftorah, the room magnetically converts us converts into a Kiddush hall, sponsored by Lenny's. Unfortunately, this Kiddush is automatically removed from the competition based on National Kiddush Club Association rules as a Kiddush club is required to meet during the services in order to qualify. But wait, there is more. In another room, well, more like a cabana meets a greenhouse, are a bunch of guys hanging out and learning Hasidus while they munch on Harakutiri board made by leaders, who was one of the many in-house caterers, and some spicy pickle chips made by a Yerich meal, their chef. The vibe felt more like a brunch than a kiddish club, but we were warmly welcomed. Suddenly, as if there was a fire alarm, most of the members rushed in to hear Rabbi Zajak give words of Torah on the Parsha. This was a nice touch to what we thought was an unending kiddish club. It was a wonderful experience and a beautiful walk home. Sometimes one man closes a door, but God opens a window. Before we get to the winner, we wanted to share our thoughts on the Kiddush Clubs, uh, uh, Kiddush Clubs in L.A. because we know it is a touchy subject. We believe, as corroborated in the Mishpaka magazine feature, that there is a delicate balance between Kiddush Club Tefillah and our Rabbinim. By and large, all shuls are doing a great job and there are many people who go to shul today because of the Kiddush Club and the atmosphere it creates. For some, it's not the food or alcohol. It is the camaraderie that they look forward to after a long week. But like everything in life, it is about moderation. Drink responsibly, eat responsibly, and show the rabbis, other congregants, and guests the respect they deserve. Our winner is West of Robertson, Mogan David, East of Robertson, Habad Sola. But in the end, we all win with so many great kiddush clubs and so many great centers of Torah and Tefillah. Hag Sameach. That was Best Kiddush Club in L.A. Part 2 from the Happenings in the Hood section with T.M. Zavi and the Doc. Happening in the Hood with T.M. Zavi and the Doc is a new review column of local Jewish and kosher establishments. Zavi uh, Ratner Stauber is a mortgage breaker, broker in L.A., and Stephen Kufferman is an oral and maxillofacial surgeon in Century City. For more breaking news in the community, check at TMZV on Instagram. And now from the section in the know, 
This is called New Stuttering Clinic Opens in L.A. by Ariella Kaufman. There is a unique ability to triumph over one's challenges and make the victory into a medium that helps others. Rabbi Yankee Kaufman's story is one of turning his greatest challenge into a source of help and hope for hundreds of others. For over 20 years, Yankee suffered from a debilitating stutter. In his desperate attempt to gain fluency, he went to a long list of top speech therapists in both America and Israel, and his parents spent tens of thousands of dollars in, on his therapy. Some of the methods offered promise in the therapist's office, some of them even unconventional, but they all proved incapable of translation to the real world. I couldn't hide my stutter. It affected everything, Yankee recalls. Behind it, every thought I wanted to share was always the question, is it worth it? Like most stutterers, I balanced my words on a scale. Was the stress and effort of expressing myself worth the sentiment I hoped to convey? People are affected by stuttering more than just not being able to get the word out. There's a social component that limits their ability to freely engage and connect with others. There's the academic blockade because one is hesitant to speak up in class or yeshiva. A financial impact is due to the limitations of the careers that uh, stutterers choose due to fear. They may be qualified for a more highly paid profession, but chose not to go into these fields that require more verbal communication due to their stutter. Rohiness is also inhibited for men who don't feel comfortable giving shuriam, asking questions while learning, being an active Havrusa, accepting an aliyah in shul, or laning. Even with all these limitations, Yankee Kaufman was thriving in life. He had many friends in school, went to summer camp and yeshiva, had Havrusas with the Roshi Yeshiva in the Emir and Camp Aguda, married, and had children. One day he was asked to give his zook to another man who stuttered and was in a very desperate situation. The night before they met, Yankee davened to Hashem to help him say the right things to help his fellow stutterer. While he was jolting down, jotting down some of his Zook ideas, different techniques started uh, percolating in his mind, which Kaufman would use as an experiment the next day. Some of those were strategies he had learned during his many years in speech therapy, but he added his own unique creative twists. Both he and the other man benefited from this technique without either of them stuttering once during their long conversation. So excited about his new technique, Kaufman went home and shared it with his wife, reviewing it repeatedly, going over all the details and fine-tuning it. He dissected, broke down the methods, and added to it when ne where necessary. This encompassed so many of the goals and theories of the therapist that I went to, but in a shorter, more practical and methodical way, Kaufman says. Excited to share his breakthrough, Kaufman offered to work pro bono with others who suffered with stuttering in his Sanhedria Merkevet apartment in Israel. Yankee honed his method, structuring it in a way where he would be, he would be able to cater to the broadest amount of people. Kaufman shares that we are getting to the root of the issue. People who stutter, stutter are lacking control over their speech. This method shows people how to be in control of their speech via speech and behavioral therapy, provides influency skills, and a way to overcome the emotional barriers that people who stutter have. While other methods separate the person from the stutterer, Kaufman's method 
addresses not just the stutterer, but the stutterer. In order to teach his innovative program to the masses, Kaufman knew he had to connect with his credentialed, experienced speech therapists and other professionals. They gave him their support and endorsements. He explained and taught over his method, answering all the questions that came in, after which one seasoned speech therapist in particular replied that he was blown away because it brought everything together, but in a sensical and coherent way. Kaufman and his family moved from the Eretz Yisrael back to the U.S. to launch his new program. What's the most unique factor in the way we do it? We make the skills practical. A lot of people have great theoretical skills, but if they aren't practical, then the skills aren't catering to the typical stutterer. They will fall through the cracks, and it won't hold up in real life or long term. Rabbi Kaufman doesn't only teach skills, he teaches people how to integrate the skills into their daily life. People come out knowing why they stutter and see and can see results in a very short period of time. The program includes a brilliant follow-up system in which select graduates of his program have been speaking fluently for a while, coach new clients on maintaining their fluency so it can become second nature. Kaufman currently has coaches across America, England, and Eretz Yisrael. As the need grew for his program to branch out, Rabbi Kaufman has extensively trained several hand-selected licensed therapists who have many years of experience and the passion and patience it takes to help those who stutter. Because stuttering is chronic, pervasive, and complex in its dynamics of encompassing neurological, physical, and emotional elements, long-term fluency is a real specialty. Kaufman took this revolutionary approach and found Smooth Speech Solutions, LLC. There are now 11 branches of Smooth Speech Solution, and they have over a thousand success stories of those who they've helped attain fluency. Kaufman supervises and keeps his therapist updated with his latest breakthroughs. One of the most exciting parts of my job is when people call me after they have finished the program to share how the program enhanced their life. An excited mother will tell me how their son spoke beautifully at his bar mitzvah. Another will call me with the good news that he's a hosen, and now he's calling me first to tell me how he feels that this played a, a pivotal role in getting him to this milestone. A young rabbi will tell me how he was willing to accept a maggot shur position instead of remaining a shul uemshia. Uh, and yet another will share how he upgraded to his dream job instead of a job that was just more convenient for his speech. The newest development of Smooth Speech Solutions is in Los Angeles. Dina Weller, MSCCC SLP, has 15 years of experience as a compassionate licensed speech therapist and is excited to bring Rabbi Kaufman's methodical and successful program to the LA community. That was New Stuttering Clinic Opens in LA by Ariella Kaufman, from the in the know section all right now here's a section called personal perspectives and this is called a malak comes to visit by kalanit kopel there is a malak that comes to my door every month she usually visits on rosh hodesh but not necessarily so filled with words of moshiach's ever-present impending arrival she seeks to reassure that all which seems frightening and bad are merely signs that he is on his way. My visitor is named for one of the 
Imahos, one that suffered tremendously in her life and davened to Hashem for deliverance from a hardship even more so, but, did, but didn't they all? Born in North Africa, this modern Aim speaks many languages, including English. Her Franco-Arabic uh, lilt greets me with a warm smile, arms outspread, reassuring me not to worry. How does she know? Can't she read it on my face? Or does she understand implicitly that many of us walk around day to day with thoughts of our fears, worries, and helplessness? I consider worries of family members, children, and community to be more lofty than material concerns of amassing wealth. But if one were to create a hierarchy of meaningful and productive thoughts, even above desiring blessings for, uh, for others, are thoughts of immuna and petachon. On the evenings of her arrival, my older children announced, Ima, your friend is here. Of course, I know exactly who they mean. Is she coming to collect Sadaka? Yes, she needs it for she, for she has a need for it. I do not know where she lives or what her last name is. Probably she lives nearby, but for me she is a Malak that appears to remind me that everything is for the good. Hako Latova. She assures me that Moshiach is coming, i.e., the reminder that I need to be thinking about him and hoping for his arrival, Bekarov, amen. And she reminds me to Davin. One night, I realized that I must give her the name of my friend whose, na whose name has just been changed with the addition of Chaya. I know that Malak's tefilos are powerful. She commits to saying Tehillim in a way that I struggle with. Because, in truth, for her, saying to heal him is like walking and breathing. For me, it's a daunting trial of potential failure, a daily commitment where I inevitably fall short because I consider it a commitment. The next month, I suspect she will be coming. It is Rosh Hodesh again, but I must tell her that my friend's name has been changed again. This time it is her permanent name, that which will be bound up with Kiseh HaKavod, her name for eternity, in Gan Eden, another of our exalted Imahos. I cannot bear to speak. I write my visitor a note on an envelope and leave it outside. My past includes a life lived through a lens of black and white thoughts awaking, awaiting the arrival of the singular right solution to a challenge. There exists today a particular challenge on which I spend much mental and physical energy addressing on a daily basis. Thank God I have been witness to improvement. I attributed the positive change to one intervention and decided to give credit even to a second, though historic, intervention. Ultimately, I had forgotten the most important intervention of all. But she reminded me. For her most recent visit began not with Hesuk, but with a question. You see the aim Davins for us. How is the, situ how is the situation? She wished to hear an update. I look at her face and realize I have missed the most important intervention of all, Tefilos. Things are improving, thank God. I go inside to retrieve some sedaka, knowing that which she gives me is infinitely more valuable than whatever I can offer her. That was Amalek Comes to Visit by Kalanit Kapo from the Personal Perspective section. Kalanit Kapo lives in Los Angeles with her family. If you would like to reach her, you can find her at Joanne on La Cienega most days of the week. All right, here's something from the Wisdom for Women section. 
All Breathing Life Adores Your Name by Hindi Kalmenson. On my hike today, I saw three lizards scuttling across the path. Later on in the day, my kids went swimming and found a dead one on the bottom of the pool. I guess it was the juxtaposition of different lizards or life and death, but it got me to wondering. Why did the alligator lizard die, and what did the gecko, why did the geckos remain alive? Why? What's the difference? What are the factors in that determination? Will the gecko be next? How should he approach every day? By he, I mean the gecko, of course. With trepidation or with gratitude? Both feel too immense, too much, too intense. Should he numb himself? He might sit out in the uh, sun stiffly and purposely avoid thinking of anything at all. Not the impending doom of death, nor the blessing of every given moment. Would numbing help? It might help him if uh, to not uh, think about the intensity of life. It just seems too hard to live so intentionally, long term. How long is his term anyway? It all becomes very overwhelming. The thoughts are too fast, too scary, too much, too choking. Suddenly you can't breathe, and your heart is racing, and the world goes dark. Sorry, this was supposed to be about the gecko. It is too much. It is too much to think about mortality. That may be why animals don't have a concept of time. Every day is a new beginning. Some ants only have a few days. Lizards live for 15 years or so, and then there's the Greenland sharks who live over 300 years. But no one is complaining. I sit down in a field of mustard flowers and lean, eager, lean in eagerly to hear their dissatisfaction, pain, and worry. There's only a gentle swaying. Where is the frustration, fear, and anger? It is not present. I am ashamed before nature's absolute trust and humility. I question, I hunt, I hurt, while the daffodils sing praises to God unredeemingly, unremittingly. I hear their singing chorus, their uh, ad uh, adorations of love, their whole selves focused on in rapturous surrender, in awe, I listen to their voices weaving a tapestry illustrating the love of creation and its creator. And far, far away, I hear a marching. From somewhere deep, deep within there is a rumble driving towards the surface. It somehow joins the chorus of the flowers and trees and grass in a thunderously deep resonance. The reverberation drum inside my chest and ears. Although right now I feel lost. Somewhere inside, there is a bass aligned with the chorus in nature. There is a song in me that flows symphoniously with the melody I hear, and from, from there I may draw strength. We are all creations that perhaps I can let go of reason and embrace my place with humil humility. At present, in a field of yellow flowers and the sun on my face, with the wind whispering in my ear, I want to pray. All breathing life adores your name. The geckos look on. That was All Breathing Life Adores Your Name by Hindi Kalmanson from the uh, Wisdom for Women section. Hindi is a certified relationship coach based in Los Angeles. She is passionate about relationships and self-growth. She educates women on Taurus perspectives of marriage at her workshops and retreats and helps uh, women around the world through her personal coaching program. Hindi lives with her husband and four children in Los Angeles. Now here's something from a section called Midlife Musical Musings, and this is called Never Too Late by Miriam Hendelis. I'm a pianist and have played since I was a child. Somehow the piano resonated with me. 
I loved moving my fingers across the keys, practicing my songs to get them to sound better and better, and just relaxing through music. I tried some other instruments over the years, guitar, recorder, but neither of them stuck. Then came my harp. It was love at first sight and sound. I don't recall what made me try that instrument, but it might have had to do with the fact that I was friendly with a friend of a, of a harp teacher. One thing led to another, and I was taking lessons on this huge, humongous harp that I rented. It sat in my family room. I loved the lessons, but couldn't bring myself to sit down to that huge, imposing instrument. Not that the piano is smaller, but some of the height of the harp overwhelmed me. I barely practiced in between lessons. Then I heard about the therapy harp, and I investigated. I called a factory up in Northern California which manufactures harps, and before long, I was purchasing my very own 30-string therapy harp. I loved it then, I love it now, and I play it every single day. I play folk songs on my little harp. I carry it around with me to uh, patients in nursing homes where I work as a music therapist, and I play the residents' favorite music. I still play my piano and keyboard. However, my harp has become my new friend and go-to uh, for support. When I'm tired or frustrated, I take it out and play it. When I'm happy, I play it. It just seems to be there for me. It brings, it, I bring it along to friends and in communi uh, the community and cheer them up sometimes with my harp. I've learned that one who plays the harp is called a harper or a harpist. I enjoy producing gentle sounds and playing strong melodies and harmonies on the instrument. It makes me feel good to know that at this stage of my life, I can start a new hobby, pursue it, and master it somewhat. Knowing that I have done that with the harp helps me with other things in my life. It's never too late to start something new. Now that's a, valuable, a value to harp on. That was Never Too Late by Miriam Hendelis from the Midlife Musical Musings section. Miriam Hendelis, M.A., M.T.B.C., is a music therapist for hospice patients and a writer for Bima Magazine and other publications. She's the author of Mazel Tov, It's a Bubby, and Best Foot Forever. Best Foot Forward, that is. One of her passions is advocating from, for, uh, from women in midlife through a recently launched website called uh, of JWOW, or www.jewishwomenofwisdom.org where from midlife, women uh, from midlife Women Connect, communicate, and grow through online and virtual interaction. All right, this is a section called Wholesome Health, and this is called Strengthening, Strength Training for Women by Sarah Zipvia Karmonik. My specialty is strength training, training, also known as resistance training. The main objective of strength training is to provide a stimulus that increases muscle strength. The way we get stronger and build muscle is through a progressive overload. This means that as you get stronger, the resistance has to gradually increase in order to make the workout challenging enough to make your muscles work to near failure. This causes micro tears in your muscles, and the recovery process makes them adapt and grow stronger over time. Men are generally not afraid of this process, but up until recently, most of the women I have encountered were. I am here. To change this. When I first began training, women would come into my gym, see the barbell, and say, there's no way I'll be able to do this. Many of them feared that they were not strong enough. 
Others had the notion that lifting weights would make them look like a man. Strength training has not yet, had not yet become a mainstream enough, and cardio was the exercise of choice. But then a gradual shift began to take place. These women began to discover something. Strength. Not just physical strength, but emotional and mental strength and resiliency. A strength that was coming from the inside out. By pushing their minds past limiting beliefs such as women can't be strong, they began to transform their own self-perceptions. The biggest transformation I observed in the gym was the confidence that my clients were discovering through the process. This is the magic of strength training. It is a commitment to ourselves, pushing through failure, getting lost in the process, being patient, and finding something amazing on the other side, a stronger, more resilient self. Watching this evolution is very exciting. In a society where most women aspire to be a specific body size, minds are beginning to change. In an industry where so much emphasis is placed on aesthetics, women are understanding that there is a much greater value to lifting weights. Women are coming to me saying, I am here because I want to be strong. This is music to my ears. There are a number of fascinating benefits to strength training that are beyond just aesthetics. After the age of 30, we naturally lose as much as 3-5% to of our muscle mass per decade. Less muscle means less mobility, more weakness, and a greater likelihood of falls and fractures as one ages. Less muscle also means a slower metabolism. Strength training changes that. The more muscle your body has, the more calories it burns, even at rest. A strong metabolism is power, a powerful tool to weight management. Strength training also puts pressure on our bones. This is a good thing. The pressure increases bone mineral density, which slows down and can even reverse the effects of bone density loss or osteoporosis. Strength training not only improves our metabolism and makes us feel strong and invigorated, but it also slows down the aging process. This is why so many refer to it as the fountain of youth. It is the only way to build back muscle mass that has been lost through the aging process. And the benefits don't stop there. Building muscle helps improve heart health, functional flexibility, insulin sensitivity, and posture. It balances hormones, helps maintain balance, and boosts confidence. It is no wonder that more and more women are telling me that their doctors are prescribing strength tra uh, training as a part of their overall healthy lifestyle regimen. Okay, so now that you're convinced, how do you get started? For starters, two to three 30-minute workouts a week with one's own body weight and dumbbells can be a great place to begin. Using one's own body weight as a form of resistance without using any extra weights can be done through push-ups, squats, and pull-ups. If you are training twice a week, aim for two full body workouts. The goal is that the last two reps should be, feel like you're about to fail which is the way to gouge whether the weight is challenging enough. As you get stronger, increase the weights or the reps. As with any regimen, consistency is key to seeing results. It will take time, but the benefits are worth the time and effort. You will most likely have more days that you want to quit than the days you feel, uh, motiva you feel motivated. Motivation only gets you started. Discipline gets you results. Remember, you are the greatest project that you will ever get to work on. Take your time and create magic. 
that was Strength, Strength Training for Women by Sarah Zifia Carmonic from the Wholesome Health section. Sarah Carmonic is an educator for 20 years and has embarked into the realm of women's health and fitness. She specializes in strength training and nutrition coaching. Sarah is a certified personal trainer as well as a CSCS specialist in exercise therapy, corrective exercise specialist, and PN1 nutrition coach. For coaching inquiries, please email at uh, uh, Weiner Sarah, W E I N E R S A R A H, at yahoo.com. And now here's something from the wellness section, and this is called Dairy or Not by Baraha Abramson, RDCDN. Going dairy-free or vegan is one of the latest trends surrounding the food market. Alternatives to cow's milk continue to pop up and have been growing in selection across uh, all supermarket shelves. From soy to almond to oat milk, there are many dairy-free options to choose from. It seems going dairy-free is the healthier way based on the information we see marketed. But is is this true? Not our milks are created equal, and there are pros and cons to each. How can one make an educated decision about what form of milk is best for them? Milk and dairy products are one of the richest sources of essential nutrients, which is why they are recommended as part of a healthy diet from toddler through adulthood. An average glass of whole milk contains 8 grams of protein, 8 grams fat, 11 grams carbs, and a generous dose of vitamin B12, calcium, vitamin D, phosphorus, potassium, magnesium, and zinc. Based on its nutrient makeup, one glass of whole milk can be equivalent to a well-balanced snack. The fat content of milk contains more than 400 beneficial fatty acids, including many that we don't receive from other foods. In addition, grass-fed cow's milk has a high omega-3 content versus the average corn-fed cow's milk. Another key ingredient in dairy is lactose, which is not only used by the body as a source of energy, but also has been deemed as a prebiotic promoting gut health. If one enjoys dairy and can tolerate it, they should feel confident. Uh, they should feel confident consuming it. However, with over 50% of the world's population having trouble digesting or tolerating dairy, one may wonder whether it is still considered healthy to consume. The answer to this depends on the individual. Many omit dairy from their diet simply for weight loss, to feel better about themselves, or to be more eco-friendly. On the other hand, some have lifelong gastrointestinal issues related to dairy intolerance. What it comes down to is how sensitive one is to dairy. Some have difficulty tolerating solely lactose and therefore can choose lactose-free options. Additionally, different forms of dairy such as yogurts and cheese contain different levels of lactose and are likely to be better tolerated than milk alone. It is also important to note but the quantity of dairy consumed can make a difference as well, with some just needing to monitor how much of it they eat. If well tolerated for all children, women in the reproductive years, and the elderly, dairy provides the richest blend of nutrients that are essential for growth, bone health, and reducing the risk of fractures and osteoporosis. Cow's milk and fermented dairy products like yogurt and kefir are also associated with a lower risk of obesity, type 2 diabetes, and more recently discovered cardiovascular disease. 
If a parent chooses to omit dairy from their children's diet, they must be vigilant that their, children is, their child is consuming the other rich sources for, of protein, calcium, vitamin D, and phosphorus, which may not be an easy daily feat. Parents should do their research or consult with a registered dietitian. For adults who choose to avoid dairy, let's break down some milk alternatives to help make the next grocery run a bit easier. Lactose-free milk is nutritionally equivalent to cow's milk and is a great alternative to those unable to tolerate regular cow's milk. Lactose is a form of sugar naturally found in cow's milk. Generally, those who are lactose intolerant are deficient in the enzyme lactase, which is required to digest lactose. When lactase is added to milk, it creates lactose-free milk. Lactase enzyme can also be taken in pill form and consumed with regular cow's milk products. Soy milk's nutrition composition is the most similar plant-based milk to cow's milk, which makes it a suitable nutrient-dense option. However, soy milk is lower in calcium and lacks vitamin D, so it is important to choose soy milk fortified with these nutrients or to supplement separately. Please note particularly among children, it is common for those with a milk protein allergy to also have a soy allergy. Almond milk and other nut milks share a similar nutrient profile. An average glass of unsweetened almond milk has inferior nutrient levels in comparison to cow's or soy milk. Almond milk is not considered a nutrient-dense milk, but is a good source of calcium, vitamin E, mag manganese, zinc, and potassium. Many nut milks these days are fortified in vitamin D and vitamin B12 but may contain undesirable additives. Almond milk is a nice option for one who is looking to lose weight. However, it is not an ideal choice nutritiously given its lack of protein. Oat milk has recently become a popular, popular due to its creamy consistency and natural sweetness. It is also free of dairy, soy, and nut allergens. However, since it is made from a grain, it is much higher in carbs and lower in protein than other milk alternatives. Therefore, oat milk would not be a recommended choice for those with diabetes. It may not either be appropriate for those with celiac due to its content of avenin, a gluten-free like a gluten-like compound. Be aware of that many oat milks contain added processed oil that are high in saturated fat, so always be sure to check labels. On the other hand, Oat milk is higher in fiber than all other milk alternatives and con contains beta-glucans, a prebiotic fiber that promotes gut health. Like almond milk, oat milk is usually fortified with calcium, vitamin D, and vitamin B12 to help meet nutrient needs. With all this in mind, one should not forget to carefully read food labels and ingredients to select the best option for his or her needs. Be careful to choose unsweetened options as many milk alternatives contain unnecessary added sugars. Also, uh, beware of potential allergens or artificial additives. Following a dairy-free or exclusive plant-based diet may make it difficult to meet one's daily vitamin and mineral needs. A thoroughly planned diet and nutrient supplementation can help. To better assess which path is ideal for you, reach out to a registered dietitian who can best analyze your nutrition needs, daily eating routine, beliefs, and GI tolerance. That was Dairy or Not by Braha Abramson, RD, CDN, from the Wellness section. 
Raha Abramson, RDCDN, is a clinical dietitian nutritionist with over eight years of adult and pediatric experience. She graduated from New York Presbyterian, Cornell, and Columbia with a, fo- a fellowship specializing in pediatrics. She currently sees clients in a private practice, Robin's Nest Family Nutrition. Feel free to contact her at 323-230-0590 or Braha Abramson, RD, at gmail.com. All right, so with the time left, let's read some ads from uh, the Jewish LA Jewish Home for May 18th through the 31st, 2023. And this one, Peak Benefits and Insurance Solutions. Dovi Platner, over 30 years experience specializing in health insurance for companies and nonprofit organizations, individual and family plans, long-term care, individual life, and disability. Benefits for executives. Your doctors don't take insurance? Ready to say goodbye to out-of-pocket healthcare expenses? Say hello to the exclusive high-end healthcare benefits you deserve. Benefits for employees. Medical benefit. Rate analyzation. Ancillary Solutions, Workers' Comp, COBRA, and Benefits Administration. Call today for a free consultation. 310-407-9333. Email is dovi, D-O-V-I, at peakbiz.com. And uh, the website is www.peakbiz, P-E-A-K-B-I-S.com. License number 0G67814 and OC97904. Here's one. You may be carrying more than you know. One in 12 Ashkenazi Jews is a carrier for Goucher disease. Goucher disease is an inherited progressive condition that affects approximately 1 in 850 members of the Ashkenazi community. While carriers have no symptoms, they can unknowingly pass the condition on to their children. Speak to your doctor today. Learn more, learn more at GoucherCare.com. And here's one. Let me help you get smart about protecting your business, restaurants, apartments, retail, HOAs. Daniel Katz Insurance Agency, Incorporated. Your local agent. California license number 0L29731 and 0F. 43669. Address is 8665 Wilshire Boulevard, Suite 200 in Beverly Hills, 90211. Email is dkatz, K-A-T-Z, at farmersagent.com. Call 323-800-6657 today. Let me help you get the most value out of your insurance coverage. Farmers Insurance. And we have this one. Your trusted leasing team, now in the auto repair business. Classics since 1977, Auto Body, now part of Universal Car Leasing. Address is 8556 West Pico Boulevard in LA, 90035. Call 323-655-8878. And here's this one. Temi B, pre-Shavuot sale, new and exciting colored stone and diamond collections. Call for your personal appointments. Tembi.com. That's T E M I B.com. Phone is 213-488-5350 or 213-910-6099 or 773-800-6990. 
and we can throw in one more here like this I need help with my team ascend healthcare residential and outpatient services teen mental health and substance abuse treatment website is www.ascendhc.com phone is 310-361-3202 and folks, it looks like we are about to come to the end of another edition of Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. So for everything that is happening with us Jewish folk right here in the city, the state, the nation, and the world, find it all right here. Until next time, everybody, this is your reader and host, Mark Braun. Shalom and peace. See you next time.